Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insight, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and I'm your host, Carl Sharman. Today I'm joined by Scott Corzine. Scott is the Senior Managing Director at Ancura Consulting, and he is also the co-leader of the Risk Management Practice. His team focus on the operational risk and resilience challenge of their clients in the areas of cybersecurity, business continuity, disaster recovery, and crisis management. They help clients understand their risk posture, improve their readiness, and become a more resilient in the face of operational disruptions. Hope you enjoy. Beecher Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the podcast today. Carl, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Yourself? I'm fine, thank you. Good to hear. So, let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, on the east coast of the U.S. Excellent. Who are or were your parents? Well, both my parents uh, we've lost. My father was uh, a local guy who was the a sales manager for a small manufacturing firm, and my mother was a lifelong teacher. Excellent. Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in North Carolina, went to school there, uh, attended uh, uh, university at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm a Tar Heel. And then I moved to New York in 1977, uh, got my master's degree in international marketing, uh, and I've lived in Manhattan ever since for the last 42 years. How do you get an international marketing master's and end up in cybersecurity? <laughs> well, that's a good question. You, you might say all roads lead to cybersecurity, but that would be a little, uh, a little less than, than obvious. Um, I was always a uh, technology services startup guy. I spent most of my career doing early stage startups, growth stage companies, typically in technology and business services. And uh, I was approached in 2004 by a number of risk management experts who wanted to start a, a risk management company. I helped them write the business plan and I became a consultant uh, by joining them, their team and, uh, and building the business to where it is today. So what does cybersecurity mean to you now? Well, as a frame of reference, I co-head the operational risk and resilience practice uh, at Ankara Consulting. And when we think about risk and resilience, we think about cybersecurity as one of any number of enterprise risks that organizations face. And probably the most ubiquitous one cuts across every sector, every size company, every level of sophistication. So we approach cybersecurity from an enterprise risk perspective. Uh, we view it, we view cyber risk as something that's not a technical risk, but an organizational risk and one that has to have the same sort of 
disciplined approach to it in terms of understanding what's inherently at risk, understanding the risk controls and, and mitigation steps we can take, and dealing with and either accepting or or avoiding or exploiting the uh, residual risk that we leave after we've done the work. So our view of of, of uh, cybersecurity is is uh, is uh, one of the one of the uh, most important and pervasive risks facing every senior management team, every board that we deal with. You know, and as we spoke about before, you've worked a lot in business continuity, emergency and crisis management. So where does that as a risk fit in and and compare with cybersecurity? Well, that's a great question. If you look at any of the cybersecurity frameworks, the regulations, the standards, virtually all of them have as 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 one of their domains what we'll call operational resilience, which is which is uh, business continuity, IT disaster recovery, the ability to do incident management or crisis management, and essentially uh, work your way through what, unfortunately, is virtually virtually an inevitable uh, or the inevitability of being of being breached. Uh, so, so while cybersecurity often deals with and is often emphasizing the prevention and the detection side of things, the, I think one of the more important overlooked sides is the uh, recovery, the restoration of operating procedures, and the entire business continuity and business resilience. So we look at both sides and we specialize in that resilience side of things precisely because our view is that uh, most entities uh, are probably being hacked right now. They've most likely been hacked in the past, and they're certainly likely to be hacked in the future. So our the reason we approach it this way is that if that's the case, then being uh, then then having an incident is as predictable as it would be facing a hurricane if you're based in Florida. And therefore, uh, the rational objective should be resilience and recovery and long-term viability. An irrational objective is just trying to see if we can keep the bad guys out and do and and be completely efficient and effective at prevention and detection. It's just not possible because most organizations will never have the budget to be able to make the fences high enough, you know, the moats deep enough uh, to uh, to make that assurance to senior management or to the risk committee. So what cyber issues and challenges are you seeing within your clients? Well, I, I think there is a, there's a natural tension we see between the compliance motivation, uh, you know, what, what regulatory regimes do we fall under? Is it HIPAA? Is it PCI? Is it, uh, is it 23NYCRR Part 500? Those kinds of things versus um, uh, what should we be doing from a risk perspective as stewards of our company's assets, certainly from the board level and from a senior management perspective. So there's a natural tension between we're doing cyber because we have to do it from a regulatory standpoint, or we're doing it because it's good hygiene, it's good management, it's good risk management. And of course, there's always the the uh, the more inevitable drivers, 
uh, which are, we just had a loss. We just had a major operational disruption that happened because of, of some uh, infective uh, malware. So, uh, so we see that tension as one of the main, um, as one of the main factors. What are you doing this for? To to make trade, to be compliant, or to uh, to assure shareholders and stakeholders that we're uh, that we're uh, managing uh, and and protecting the organizational assets. I think that's one thing we see. Another thing uh, we see is that uh, human beings remain uh, the the cause behind most incidents. So no matter what we put in place in terms of technical controls, policies and procedures, oversight, all those things, uh, we still have to deal with what I call dumb human tricks. Uh, and we do it with very untechnical solutions. We, we train our staff. We, uh, we, we have broad organizational awareness training. Uh, we have basic access control policies and enforcement. So I think that's one thing we see that never changes, no matter how sophisticated the attack vectors may be, there are still humans either benevolently or malevolently behind most of the incident we see. Um, a couple of other items I'll point out in terms of uh, trends we're seeing and challenges. Um, as, as clients get into the M&A due diligence process, uh, we see a real lack of, of discipline around doing as much cybersecurity and technical due diligence on the buy side vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the target acquisition as we do on the management side and the financial side. So I think you're going to see a bigger emphasis going forward in the PE community and the, uh, the M&A space to do a little more rigorous cybersecurity risk analysis uh, on the on the buy side, so uh, we know what we're buying, and we're not going to be surprised on the other side of the transaction with uh, a loss of of, of market value. Um, so those are some of the things we're seeing. I, I will say, uh, if I may, that um, that we're also seeing uh, an upsurge in awareness from what I'll call critical infrastructure organizations. We're talking utilities, oil and gas, natural gas, uh, water and sewer utilities, transportation authorities. Increasingly, we're seeing uh, activity around, around the protection of physical assets and the industrial control systems and SCADA systems that drive those process industries uh, along with oil and gas, you know, energy, uh, man heavy manufacturing. This is interesting because... The motivation of the bad guys in the critical infrastructure space is not typically about stealing personal information or protected health information. It's about damaging equipment. It's about taking out networks. It's about frying physical property. Um, and we've seen that in the action that Korea took against Sony Pictures. We've seen it uh, in the losses that Mondelez described when they got hit by uh, by uh, malware when something like 25 or 30,000 computers were rendered inoperable. So the, the, the motivation and the means of nation state actors who have the sophisticated tradecraft 
to to look at industrial control systems and to start taking out operations really is a game changer because it, it you could you could say that stealing personal information is an inconvenience as an impact but shutting down equipment and putting uh, public safety at risk and operational assuredness and mission uh, assurance at risk is a, is a far bigger threat so we're seeing some we're seeing some activity there as well what's driving organizations motivation for improved cybersecurity well, I think we touched on a little bit. Certainly, the regulatory regimes are, are getting more prescriptive, a little more aggressive. Um, as an example, the New York State Part 500 regulation that was uh, implemented a couple of years ago by the Department of Financial Services gave rise to the NAIC model law, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. And once that model law was adopted by this 50 insurance commissioner group, um, we're gonna, we, we've already start, started to see and will continue to see individual states adopt that model law uh, in toto or uh, with some state-by-state uh, -state, um, uh, adjustments. Uh, and we've seen South Carolina adopt something and we're seeing several other states on the verge of adopting uh, cybersecurity laws. So, so we're seeing the number of jurisdictions, whether they're local, federal, state, uh, in, increase. We're seeing the nature of the laws become a little more prescriptive. Um, and, uh, and so I, I think that's driving some behavior. I think boards are slowly but surely becoming more risk uh, conversant as they read the same headlines that we all read. Uh, and as uh, as stewards of their organization's assets, often with fiduciary duty, they have a real interest in understanding uh, how well they're doing against best practices, against standards and, and uh, regulations, against their peers in some cases, uh, because they're the ultimate, the buck ultimately stops with the board. So I, I think we're beginning to see the intelligence quotient from a cybersecurity perspective at the board start to increase. And that's taken a long time because boards don't often hire uh, cyber articulate people uh, to sit on those boards. And, and that's going to have to change because you need uh, someone on the risk committee or on the, the uh, technology committee or, or security committee to be able to ask intelligent questions of the CISO or the chief security officer. And uh, so I think you'll see a, a big growth in cyber awareness on the board part. So I think those are those are, are two drivers. The other driver is, is, uh, is the pain of uh, what I call the pain of the lash. Um, if you've just been hit, if the organization's just been breached, uh, if a third party has introduced something into your network and in your uh, systems that is damaging, uh, uh, you have to respond from an insurance perspective, from an incident response perspective, from a regula regulatory perspective. There are aggressive reporting rules that you have to follow, especially if the organization is a public company under SEC guidance and under SEC regulation. So, so experiencing a loss or a disruption or operational downtime is the other driver. Um, 
Uh, Carl, let me add this, because I think you've hinted at it. One of the biggest drivers and elements to cybersecurity these days is what I referred to earlier, which is an increased understanding that the real implication, the real downside to many companies, many organizations, is less about the first party costs, which are all modeled uh, when uh, an adversary comes in and steals personal information, uh, protected health information, those kinds of things. Uh, we know what insurance policies cover. We know how they cover it uh, for in things like incident response and and uh, uh, and and uh, stakeholder response and uh, and those sorts of things. Forensic investigations. What's less well known and what's becoming to be better appreciated in our view is that when adversaries uh, 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 when adversaries seek to take systems out, whether they're industrial control systems or network systems, you know, IT or OT, then the impact is operational downtime. It's classic business disruption. And that's why business continuity plans and IT disaster recovery plans are, are starting to get more attention because it's those plans well rehearsed and well coordinated and well aligned that are the tools that that risk aware organizations effectively use to make sure that even though it's inevitable that they may be breached or attacked, it's also inevitable that they have a plan for uh, robust recovery. And by doing that, they're limiting another far harder cost to model, which is business interruption cost. And while organizations can buy lots of business interruption insurance coverage, uh, and most do, uh, how they quantify that, how they plan for how much of that insurance they need has to do with how well they measure uh, lost profits in the period of two days or two weeks or two months or two years that they might be taken out of, uh, of service. So I think we're seeing we're seeing the operational impact and the resilience side of, of, of cybersecurity as something that's really a growing trend. We have discussed um, insider threat a few times over our recent conversations, um, but what is at the heart of most breaches? Is it human beings or poor technical controls? Well, it's, it's, it's really a combination of both in, in some mix. Um, uh, you know, uh, if you take an example of the uh, Equifax breach, it was a it was a, a big, sophisticated company that just didn't happen to patch a known, uh, uh, you know, a known vulnerability. So uh, that has a technical uh, that has a technical surface to it, but its root cause was a process failure. Uh, how how do we not patch uh, known vulnerabilities uh, within within the uh, policy we've set up. So I, I think most of the things we've seen, most of the breaches we've seen, and most of the damage that's been done uh, is triggered by human impulse. And we, I think we'd like to think that most of that human impulse is benevolent and done by uh, happenstance or by uh, ignorance or simply by laziness. You know, you, you click on uh, on an email that that we shouldn't click on, or we 
leave a list of our passwords somewhere where someone can find it. We allow our laptop to be stolen. Those are understandable, understandable uh, events. Uh, and, and I think a, a bulk of the triggers uh, kind of start with, with, with human frailty and are borne out by the fact that the adversary, as has been said by many people before me, the adversary today is well-funded, well-financed, um, uh, equipped with really advanced tradecraft, has lots of patience, and has the right motivation and means. And when you face that sort of adversary, there's not anyone potentially listening to this podcast who's ever asked a management team for an information security budget that wouldn't like it to be more. Um, you know, I think a couple of years ago, Jamie Dimon from uh, from uh, Chase Manhattan Bank was quoted as saying, uh, as first saying, we have a $500 million information security budget. And then he corrected himself by saying, the security budget here is unlimited. We're never going to let your money leave the bank. Well, as nice as that sounds, there are very few companies that have uh, a cybersecurity budget, information security budget, remotely of the scale that a Citibank or a Chase Manhattan Bank can spend. So the rest of us poor mortals are faced with approaching cybersecurity as an enterprise risk, uh, looking at the unique operations that we manage, understanding where the risks are given the unique nature of our business, and deciding to put our biggest defenses around the most critical assets uh, with a diminution of, uh, of that sort of risk management as the criticality of the assets uh, is reduced because we can't protect everything. Let's start with the family jewels, the things, the loss of which can have a material impact on a material part of our business. Excellent. What role, or threat maybe, do third parties play in the risk to organizations? You know, Carl, that's a great question. I, I think I think that's another big trend, uh, both driven by regulatory requirements, particularly the onset of the third certification under New York State's Part 500 regulation, uh, which requires all covered entities uh, to have uh, have risk assessed the third parties that touch their non-public information in a in a way that assures that that the covered entities um, uh, certification of compliance can be made with a with a signature of a senior manager, knowing that all the third parties that 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 covered entity does business with operate in such a way as to uh, be able to protect the integrity, the availability, and the confidentiality of the covered entity's non-public information. So uh, that's one, one of the drivers. But I think what we've seen over the years, whether it's, whether it's from uh, the often quoted uh, target breach, uh, more and more uh, the ways into, the, into, the, uh, into Fort Knox are through Fort Knox's third parties and vendors and suppliers. So the whole notion of third-party risk management, understanding the cyber practices and cyber maturity of the key vendors we choose, 
setting minimal standards below which uh, uh, we're, we'll, we're willing to cut off vendors uh, and understanding how those vendor systems and vendor access into our systems uh, can uh, essentially uh, infect us should their defenses be down. And as you know, if you're a cyber attacker and you've, you're facing two banks, on one corner is the bank without a guard and the other corner is a bank with a guard and a machine gun, you're likely to rob the bank that's not protected. The same thing's true with cybersecurity. So we tell all of our clients that are in the supply chains of larger Fortune 500s, uh, mid-market companies, that while you may not think you have natural predators, it's not you they may be after. It's the folks that you're connected with. And you owe them a duty and an obligation, presumably uh, documented in the reps and warranties you've signed in your third-party agreement to protect the data of that third party the way you'd protect your own. So I think you're going to see a massive amount of, uh, of dislocation among third parties as covered entities begin to kind of clip the hedges and get rid of the parties that simply haven't measured up in terms of third party, in terms of cybersecurity, because of the threat that inevitably entails the covered entity. Now, you've mentioned a number of different industries, financial services being the latest one. Where do you focus as either an individual and a company within cybersecurity consulting? Um, and why do you focus on them industries? Well, we're a combination of, of, of reactive and opportunistic, because we have to be, uh, and proactive. So on the opportunistic side, uh, we're brought matters all the time from internal uh, uh, colleagues to external, uh, uh, our external, uh, uh, you know, networks. Uh, and, you know, reputation gets around and, and clients from every industry uh, knock on our doors and ask if we can help. So we work in the financial services sector, heavily focused in the, in the insurance and asset management and private equity areas that never had to be as cyber secure as the banks did under Part 500. We focus on the healthcare industry in great detail because as an industry, relative to the value of protected health information in the dark web, the, the, general, uh, the general healthcare organization underspends on its cybersecurity or its information security budget by an order of, or two of magnitude vis-a-vis -vis the banks, partly because, uh, uh, because the HIPAA security and privacy rule tends to be interpreted in the healthcare industry more toward the privacy side uh, than it does toward the security side. So consequently, our view is that that industry as a whole, not any particular one player, uh, tends to be underinvested in cyber controls, underinvested in skill sets and, uh, and competencies in the CISO shop, and therefore, I think, overly vulnerable. So we focus on financial services. We focus in, in um, healthcare. We're also focusing heavily in critical infrastructure, precisely for the reasons I said earlier. Uh, we're, we look at, at whether it's the 
it, whether it's the the uh, the SIF moves behind the the banking business that create all the liquidity and the and the transaction support for banking transactions, whether it's the utility industry, not just the the members of the bulk electric system, but those those regional uh, and uh, privately held cooperatives that are connected to the grid and who which are highly vulnerable to sophisticated nation state hackers in a way that can potentially infect the grid itself. We look at we look at transportation authorities, we look at process industries uh, in manufacturing, we look at oil and gas, uh, and we look at water and sewer systems. All of that critical infrastructure sector uh, is getting a lot of attention, um, largely because of well-publicized nation-state hacks, but also because they're using grant money from the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Energy, to begin to do uh, SCADA and industrial control systems assessments that go out into the field and actually look at the addressability of specific components at the level one, two, and three levels of, of an operating technology environment. So we're focused in those three areas, but do business across technology, media, uh, consumer products, you name it. Let's just focus on critical infrastructure for a second, because it seems increasingly at risk. Uh, and obviously, more and more stories, more and more people are speaking about it. Obviously, you and I actually did a white paper on the on on this subject. Um, I suppose, what are you seeing in the market? And are organizations overlooking this as a risk for them? Well, let's first kind of dissect critical infrastructure into maybe several types of sectors. Um, I think on the one hand in critical infrastructure, you have certainly in the US, you have the electric power sector that has uh, long since uh, been focused on being NERC SIP compliant um, and, and uh, maybe spending more time focusing on that compliance regime and less time spent on considering the natural vulnerabilities built into their to their field level industrial control systems. Um, so, so you have, I think, some natural resistance on the part of of that industry sector to uh, recognize that even large, sophisticated organizations uh, still have uh, operating technology networks that, while there may be lots of air gaps in them increasingly are replacing old analog components with digital components. And the digital components that are part of Industry 4.0 are not built fundamentally around security, just like the old analog versions were. They're built around process efficiency and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and purpose-built efficiency. So, you know, a capacitor or a PLC uh, or a valve or a sensor is designed to be a really good sensor. Uh, it's not necessarily designed by its manufacturer to be uh, to be something that has cybersecurity built into its internal controls and middleware. But we're still see seeing industrial control systems components shipped from big manufacturers, and there are a handful of of them out there uh, that are focused on on uh, purpose built 
effectiveness as opposed to security. And to the extent that each of these new components are being added, sometimes with central authority and knowledge, very often without central authority and knowledge, into the operating technology network, uh, we have a situation where uh, where there's a little wire coming out of a of a valve or a sensor, which means somebody somewhere can talk to it. And if somebody somewhere can talk to that sensor or valve or PLC um, and change its fundamental settings so that the information it's giving to the SCADA system is incorrect, then you have the basis for large threats around around process assurance, mission assurance, public safety. And we think this um, this risk is far bigger than industry suggested is, but I think it's going to take some time for, for industry to come around. Um, on the other end of that industry, I think you have uh, process manufacturing, sophisticated process manufacturing, heavy equipment, uh, uh, metal equipment, fabrication, food processing, chemical uh, fabrication, where I think there's a better sense of vulnerability to those industrial control systems. And I think a more willingness to to look under the hood and see see what's going on. As an anecdote, Carl, um, rarely have we been asked to go out and do an industrial control system cyber assessment where we don't come back and we see an enormous delta between what we call the as-drawn network and the as-installed network. So what headquarters believes is installed on gas line three out in state XYZ may be very different than what we find when we do a walk down by literally identifying uh, each of the components that can be can be addressed, uh, 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 you know, electronically um, and and then going through a discovery process to see what server, what person under what rules and policies can that uh, component be addressed. So the delta between the as-drawn schematic and the as-installed uh, state uh, current state is often fairly pronounced. And that delta represents a lot of risk in terms of what's installed, do we know how it operates, do we have rules where we understand what systems can talk to it, what third parties can talk to it, can the manufacturer of that component speak to it with without somehow we knowing about it and if so a hack of that manufacturer could mean that uh that a uh, uh that a threat actor could be talking to a component in our network that no one knows about and may never be picked up as an anomaly at the SCADA level there's another point that you and I have spoke about actually, which is um, around the staffing, obviously what we do um, around this area, you know, the OT versus IT, you know, operational technology versus information technology side. What challenges are you seeing around that from you as a consultancy, but also from the companies that you work with? Well, you know, we face it in a couple of ways, Carl. Um, as a as a consulting firm in the market for really good, experienced senior level security professionals, uh, we are we are subject to the same market forces that that your clients are uh, as as a uh, as a, a 
uh, as a uh, staffing uh, operation and as our competitors are and as our clients are. Um, the fact of the matter is there's something like a one to two million person shortage globally of really good information security personnel, which A, tells everyone that's listening to this podcast that if their sons or daughters are wondering what they should major in in college or what uh, what uh, profession to go into, they might look to become uh, certified cybersecurity uh, professionals because there is just not a glass ceiling in this side of the world because there's so many open spaces for good people. But so, Carl, we face it both in finding and retaining good people, but we also face it with our clients. There's not one assessment we've done in the cybersecurity space, whether it's on the OT side or the IT side, where one of the major factors is um, what does your information security operation look like? Who's running it? Uh, do they have the skills to both deal with it technically and put on their risk management hat? as the CISO and go before the board and talk about cybersecurity, information security from a risk management perspective, that's board parlance. Hard to find those folks. That's There's a big opening for people that can do both of those. Down the organization, uh, do we have the right people uh, overseeing the SDLC process? Do we have the right people overseeing application security, network security? Um, and inevitably, our risk assessments delicately but firmly uh, address uh, the fact that you just can't take um, a run-of-the-mill technology person who hasn't been trained or certified or exposed to information security issues over their career and turn them magically into an information security person credibly just by changing their title. So I think internal training, internal growth paths, and and uh, and uh, 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 professional development paths are absolutely critical. How how these organizations are governed? Where does the CISO report? Uh, if if that person reports to the CTO or the CIO, you have a fundamental tension in effect because CISOs can tend to put controls on things that can be perceived as slowing operations down, and CTOs and CIOs are paid to speed, to generally speed things up and make them more efficient. So uh, governance, uh, reporting to the board, uh, authority, uh, all of those things are, are critical. And until we solve the underlying shortage of talent part, we're seeing a seller's market, uh, we're seeing salaries rise quickly for good people. And again, I think a huge red flag is waving for all the young people out there that wonder what they should focus on. Cyber is a great place to, to make your mark and, and, and grow and become certified. So it's a it underlies everything, Carl. And it's it's a it's a it's the biggest part of risk uh, when we just can't put the right human resources in place to help a client's overall cyber program be where it needs to be. You know, given their their risk profile and their their risk appetite or their risk tolerance. So I suppose incident response, penetration testing, red teaming are all very exciting areas for people or for your clients to discuss. But how would you make 
you know areas like what you focus on in terms of business continuity disaster recovery excitable for people and actionable for your clients well there are an awful lot of firm technical firms out there that do what i'll call technical testing vulnerability testing pen test scans red team all those sorts of things ethical hacking uh, we do it as well uh I kind of see the world in, from two perspectives, and I, I describe this maybe as two different sides of the same coin. The, the, the objective of all of us in this business is to help clients uh, uh, pr protect the assets of the organization. In today's world, something like 80% of corporate assets are digital. So... Uh, it, it's it's so incumbent upon upon organizations to take this seriously, and part of that is the technical testing, uh, probing the networks, uh, proving where the vulnerabilities and the holes are, patching those holes, making those changes, and we do a lot of that work. Uh, another part of it is the incident response side. Uh, our company is is a named preferred provider on over 90 insurance policies as part of the the uh, uh, incident response panels. And so uh, as as those insurance companies uh, insureds are breached, we get uh, we get a lot of that business as do many of our competitors. And we go and do the incident response, the forensics, the uh, the law enforcement support uh, as the client needs. But I think the biggest part of this space that's overlooked, is the other side of the coin, um, and that is um, every organization is 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 a uh, is an organism with people, with needs, with uh, with uh, uh, with uh, aspirations, with com competitiveness. Uh, we're growing new things and, and building new parts of our businesses every day, and it's within these moving organisms that we're trying to create systems that we can predictably uh, uh, provide some level of assurance that the organization is minimally minimally secure. Um, but given that it's inevitable in this imperfect world that, uh, that we're going to be breached, uh, that's certainly our belief, then a, a real anchor system of any credible uh, information security program is the knowledge at the top. That means at the board level that the organization is going to be breached. It's a risk factor that every company has to take into account, but that but that we've put in place those processes, those plans, those systems, and we've rehearsed them so that when that inevitable inevitability does transpire, um, we're going to be back up and running more quickly, our downtime is going to be less, the cost of downtime, the cost of business interruption is going to be less. We've given up less shelf space to our competitor. We've lost uh, fewer uh, contracts because of downtime. Um, and we've, our reputation is more intact because we've proven to our stakeholders, to our owners, to the regulators that we have legitimate programs in place uh, well rehearsed, uh, and and that we take those risks seriously. So, I I think I think the the only uh, comprehensive view of cyber is we have to spend a, a lot of a lot more time thinking about 
those consequences of of impact uh, on operational downtime and operational uh, continuity than we just do uh, focusing on technical exposures, technical vulnerabilities, and closing those. The two go hand in hand, but I think I think you're seeing increasingly uh, attention, increasing attention, I should say, being placed to the recovery side again because all the all of the frameworks and all of the standards and all of the uh, regulations require it. And I, I think the cost of doing business is being seen as, as critical uh, in, in that regard. So I think it's a natural evolution. So let's focus on another risk at the senior level, at the very, very top of any organization. And something that's very, very common currently in the healthcare pharmaceutical market, for example, which is M&A. Um, you know, we read about acquisitions that haven't gone well, and that can be for financial reasons, but more commonly now for cybersecurity reasons. So how has the M&A process changed um, to accommodate cybersecurity risks? Well, you know, I, I think any sober observer would say that that uh, that uh, mergers and acquisitions uh, face in every sector, not just healthcare, face uh, real what I'll call uphill odds. Um, the 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 ones that take, the ones that bear fruit and that take root, uh, are really carefully thought out. The impact is really carefully uh, analyzed and really call low level integration plans are put together so uh, so we understand how these two these two separate entities are going to work together what's going to become redundant how we restaff uh, how we rebrand all those kinds of things so I think there's their natural uh, their natural uh, 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 natural uh, threats to any MA transaction because frankly a bulk of them don't work when you add cyber to it, 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 it provides a, another another um, element to the mix. I think that the, the famous uh, or the infamous example, of course, is the market value taken out of the Verizon acquisition of Yahoo. Um, uh, two major data breaches with large amounts of, of uh, customer information lost somehow conveniently left out of the due diligence and the reporting, and I assume the reps and warranties of that deal. I think it took just south of a half a billion dollars out of the deal. So I think that becomes the forever poster child for how not to do it. And, and I think that places a burden on the investment bankers uh, and, the, uh, and the consultants and the buy side community to take a little deeper look into the cyber uh, posture uh, of of the of the uh, target acquired, and I think the natural enemy to doing this is that deals take on a life of their own, and often speed to deal is the big driver. And speed to deal is fundamentally at odds with bringing in an independent third party, whoever that might be, to look at a target acquisition to get all of the, the legal and managerial approvals to look under their hood 
and to do that with with blinders on and report back to both uh, potentially acquired and potential acquirer that here's what we found. And just like you would when you buy a house, somebody's going to order an inspection and either the seller or the buyer is going to have to fix the leak in the gutter or fix the leak in the basement or replace the furnace. So rather than gloss over those risks, I think it's better to deal with them front and center and to move cybersecurity uh, uh, assessment up there with managerial assessment and financial assessment uh, as go, no go uh, 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 inputs into an acquisition uh, or certainly to put uh, a plenty large contingency fee aside or escrow fee aside to take care of of uh, cyber problems found post deal. Uh, and I think you'll see the the, the uh, market moving in that direction. Maybe slowly and hesitantly, but I think inevitably. How do you prioritize what needs to be worked on? Well, it, it's it, the answer is simple. The process is less so. Um, it, it's it's by doing a risk assessment. It, every organization has a unique portfolio of risks, information security risks, cybersecurity risks, based on what they do, how they do it, where they do it, what markets they do it for, and so forth. And every company, likewise, has, whether they know it or not, and the problem is many don't know it, uh, they have a risk profile, the, uh, or excuse me, I, I should say they have a risk uh, appetite. They have some level of risk tolerance or risk aversion. So the, the, way, you, the way you prioritize is to do a risk assessment. Typically, that's done with independent folks who can kind of put blinders on and tell it like it is. Uh, point out what those risks are against best practices, against proven uh, control regimes. Report back to the uh, to the uh, managers, um, and and look at those inherent cyber risks. Look at the controls we have to put in place to manage those risks. Um, look at what's called, called the residual risk once we put those controls in place, and then every organization has to make a number of of decisions on the residual risk. Are we willing to accept it given our risk profile? Can we transfer this risk by buying the right kind of insurance, cybersecurity insurance or uh, board DNO insurance or, uh, or property and casualty insurance for the protection of physical assets with a cyber trigger, whatever those things are, business interruption insurance. So what which of those residual risks can we can we transfer to an insurer in return for a premium? Uh, are there any risks we need to avoid? Should we get out of a business or get or stop doing a process because we can't handle, we're not willing to handle that residual risk? And finally, are there residual risks that we could get creative around and exploit them and turn them into a competitive advantage? So I think if you go at this from an an enterprise risk perspective that looks at, at the objectives of the company, the strategy of the company or organization, the risks inherent against the risk, uh, the risk uh, appetite. You you come up with a framework and a process that uh, that is less about uh, whack-a-mole, where you're where you're reacting to the latest incident or the latest headline, and instead you're cautiously 
and uh, and uh, inevitably treating those risks that have the highest degree of impact, potential impact, and getting to the lesser risks in another time. I think that's that's the answer for every for every organization, whether they do that formally through an enterprise risk management process. Many of our clients ask us to do that, or whether they do it uh, kind of uh, uh, just intuitively going through that process is is really the only credible and defensible way to uh, decide where do we spend our limited resources in cyber? What do we start with? That's the way to do it. How do you assist your clients in understanding their risks? How do you communicate that? Um, well, uh, we often are asked to come in and look at at uh, at artifacts. So we'll look at past risk assessments that have been done internally. Will be provided risk assessments that have been done in the last one or two or three years from other third parties. We want to see what other people that have come before us have said. We don't want to recreate the wheel if we don't have to. Uh, we want to go on site and have a look at the environment. We want to meet with managers of the major processes and functions, understand the business and what they do and what's uniquely built into those processes, not just. Uh, not just um, uh, uh, proprietary risks, but those risks that are interdependent risks based on third-party arrangements and and uh, and process flows. We want to look at that. Um, we want to look at the documentation. We want to interview the CISO or the or the chief security officer, the head of HR, uh, the head of the of process engineering. If it's a manufacturing company, we want to understand what keeps them up at night. We want to advise them on what keeps up us up at night based on what we see. And we want to compare that to best practices. So whether we're doing that against a CIS top 20 or whether we're doing that against, you know, NIST 800 or ISO 27001-2 or whatever the framework may be, it's a combination of, of, of document review, of interviews, of site visits, uh, of, of really pulling it all together. Uh, and uh, and if it's done right, it's it's factual, it's supported. Uh, we put narrative around our findings, and we always try to deliver those findings in context. And by context, I mean, I mean, what I call right sizing the effort. You know, wh what you may recommend to a small uh, uh, technology company or a small software development company. In the area of uh, software development lifecycle process, may differ a lot in what you expect a, a a major a major league media company to do, with lots of exposure to applications that are public facing, either on a, on the mobile side or the or the or the uh, web side. So it's look, looking at the industry the client's in, the size of the of the client. Uh, the client's risk appetite, all of those environmental factors, and deciding, given what the business they're in, how strongly do we recommend around multi-factor authentication or uh, or encryption or again an SDLC or or uh, you know monitoring SIM and and SOC monitoring? Uh, do we recommend they push those functions into the cloud and go to a third party? Because that's more cost effective, or do we recommend they bring it in house? 
all of our findings are based on the unique situation and circumstances and exigencies at each client. So you have to do this against standards and best practices, but you have to have the professional skills and insight to interpret those those requirements or those best practices in the context and environment of every single client. And they're all different. And their tolerance for these sort of findings and the cost of remediation and ongoing uh, hygiene in their systems varies greatly. So it's all about contextualizing uh, what the best practices may be. How do you know when you've actually finished with a client? Well, the quick answer as a consultant is you hope you're never finished with a client. But I'm, I'm <laughs> joking. Uh, I, I think that I think uh, many of our matters are transactional. Uh, hey, we're looking to buy a new electronic health record system, and we want you to come in and do a meaningful use audit to make sure that the software we're buying uh, the EHR software we're buying in a healthcare application works as advertised and meets all the regulatory requirements of of the meaningful use uh, uh, guidance. Uh, th- that's kind of a, 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 a project that starts and stops with the delivery of findings and so forth. But I think a majority of the projects uh, start with an assessment. Where are we now? Uh, what's our current posture? Where do we land on the maturity scale um, in our industry and our size? If we're at a one and a half or a two on the CMMI scale, and we want to be a three or a four, what does that roadmap look like? Is it a matter of months to get there? Is it a matter of years to get there? What structurally do we have to put in place to get there? Do we have the right IT environment built? Do we have the right people running it? Do we have the right a security organization in place for where version 2.0 of our organization has as its trajectory or level 3.0. So we look at, we look at, at kind of right-sizing uh, the cybersecurity program, just like the information, uh, the IT program. We want to help clients recognize that those, that those operations, that those operations have to be um, have to essentially be sales and not anchors in our operation, and uh, and so it may start with an assessment. Where are we? A posture assessment. It may start with some pen tests or some vulnerability assessments, but inevitably it leads to to here's some holes in the approach. Here's some recommendations. Here's based on order of magnitude. Here's the fiery red hot ones that have to be cleaned up right now. These are existential. These are the next ones in line and so forth. And uh, all the way down to the ones that can be remediated a month from now or two months from now. And and that often leads to ongoing engagement. And I think the best example is the number of clients we deal with now who, because of the shortage we talked about, good cybersecurity people at the senior level, um, are asking us to uh, be their essentially outsourced CISO. So we have uh, uh, we have a, a set of services called Office of the CISO Services, and we place a well well uh, 
experienced senior people that have been CISOs in other industries uh, on site and available both virtually and, and physically at our clients a day a week, two days a week, five days a week. Uh, these assignments are typically six-month assignments or nine-month assignments or a year, maybe a year and a half assignments with the idea of being, let's come in and help you uh, right-size your effort now, do all the tough things, talk to your board, get the right uh, funding for what you need to do, explain the risks so everything is in some level of, uh, of, uh, of balance, and then let's put ourselves out of business by helping you then find a permanent replacement um, and let us do a nice smooth baton handoff to that replacement by finding someone we think has the technical chops to do the job and has the cultural awareness to work effectively in your organization and with your board and to do some knowledge transfer from what we've learned so that when we step away from that role as the CISO nine months out or 12 months out or 15 months out, uh, there's a smooth progression right to a permanent replacement. And so that's something that's increasingly popular because firms struggle with how to find and vet and bring in effective uh, uh, senior cyber people. So we're trying to provide that stopgap service uh, uh, in between. So that's one indicator of, uh, of your question. Let, let's finish off by talking about you. So you've spent time at three reputable firms, you know, being Ancura and FTI, for example. Um, did you make that choice on purpose? Well, uh, going back to your first question, where I was born and how did I get to New York, uh, uh, in 2004, uh, I formed a business with partners called Risk Solutions International. And we built that uh, firm with some private equity backing to, in fact, become a, a premier operational risk and resilience practice focused on advisory and consulting around just the things we've talked about, cybersecurity, business continuity, crisis management, uh, IT disaster recovery, enterprise risk management. And, th and that's, we've kept true to our mission. We built that company up and we were acquired uh, some years ago by FTI Consulting. Uh, and we, uh, in the end, landed at Ankara when Ankara was formed uh, several years ago, uh, precisely because the model of Ankara is to build, uh, to build a, an effective advisory and consulting expert firm that, that doesn't build silos and does everything that we do in a really highly collaborative, supportive manner. And I think, I think this, is, this is why we landed here and are really building out this platform uh, at Ankara because, because building it that way and going to market that way uh, just yields kind of a natural organic uh, reputation growth and, and client growth that we like a lot and it, it affords us long-term client relationships. So it, it was never, it was never the, the plan written in stone, but we formed a business. We were entrepreneurs. We built it. Uh, and and we did a couple of transactions to uh, end up uh, at Anchor Consulting, uh, and we're real proud to be here and and uh, and work with colleagues in our cybersecurity incident response practice and all the other practices here. Uh, I think 
I think benefiting from the fact that all the services we provide are services and needs and challenges that that every kind of of uh, client in in Anchor's other practices have, whether they're in the healthcare sector, the financial services sector, manufacturing, energy, or consumer products. So we have one of those uniquely ubiquitous service offerings that uh, should be on the radar of every risk-aware company, uh, and uh, you know, for improvement and for at least some sense of of hygiene and and program maturity. Why consulting for you, Scott? <laughs> Well, it's it's an interesting business in that uh, your expertise is valued, your experience and your longevity is valued. Um, clients are paying for knowledge. They're paying for expertise. They're paying for perspective. They're paying for your willingness to make tough calls and to tell them things that they may not want to hear and to explain why and to put your findings and your advice into context. Uh, I like helping. I like creating programs. I like uh, to see success on my client side. And I like the variability of this business. You know, in any one week, I, I may spend three hours with uh, with a uh, genomic company, uh, five hours with a bank, uh, give a presentation to a board audit committee, um, and uh, and hire a young person right out of college who wants to become a cybersecurity analyst. Um, so the variability of, of sector and of region and geography, we operate globally, is interesting and uh, and keeps one fresh, hopefully keeps one fresh and uh, and on top of his toes. So it's, it's, a, it's a fun, um, dynamic business, and I enjoy it. So just on that, what advice would you give people looking to get into cybersecurity? Do it. That's my advice. The, the, the shortage is palpable. Um, the effects are measurable and detrimental, the effects of, of the shortage. And we're just not growing good cyber analysts fast enough to grow into these uh, mid-level and, and senior and leadership positions. So uh, a, a lot of my clients have graduating Juniors or you know graduating seniors or juniors that are between seniors in high school, some that are halfway through college or graduating, and and I'm I'm always willing to sit down with them, have lunch, and and let them ask me about what this sector is like. Um, I think that if they're willing to 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 learn the business, to to kind of learn the craft, um, and be mentored by by senior people that have been out there and seen lots of things, and 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 bring unique, holistic experiences to it. I think cyber uh, is, is, if they can see it as not a technical, uh, kind of just a technical skill, but a skill that hopefully like mine comes from kind of 365 degrees of experience where I'm not a technically skilled guy, uh, but it's about seeing cyber within that, within that framework and perspective of risk management and operational excellence. If, if they like that, um, I think I think there's a green light for them, and I think for for uh, both young men and women, uh, there's just not uh, the kind of of uh, limits and ceilings on growth 
uh, on speedy growth in this business that you see in more mature areas where you have to really pay your dues and go up the ladder slowly. Uh, I know people in their early 30s that are chief information security officers at major companies, really smart, capable people, uh, because the need was there. They showed the skills and the ambition, and, uh, and they're doing great in those jobs. And and there are lots of there are lots of, uh, of professions you can pick where you're not going to be in that senior kind of position at that age. It's going to be your 40s till you get there. So I think it's an open field. I think uh, it it welcomes people with technical skills and with risk management skills. And and I would urge I would urge people to really think about that as a direction if they they haven't already chosen. Excellent advice. And what I didn't tell you, Scott, was I finished the podcast with 10 quick fire questions. So are you ready? I'll do my best. That's all I can ask. (laughs) What turns you on professionally? Challenge, building new things. What turns you off professionally? Politics, positioning. How do you unwind? Golf. There's no surprise you answered with that. What profession other than your own would you like to try? You know, I always wondered uh, when I look back, uh, if I had gone into certain financial services areas, uh, I, 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 might, uh, I might be far better off than I am now as a consultant. So I, I often wonder what it would be like to, uh, to have been in the financial services business of the insurance business. That's of interest to me. What activity gives you the most energy? Well, I honestly think uh, back to golf, playing golf. It's it's a combination of zen. It's a combination of tuning out the world and turning your phone off and being unavailable to anyone for hopefully 18 holes. And, uh, and those 18 holes promise to have at least a handful of shots that feel so good and so energizing that you think you finally figured out the game until you make those shots where you realize you haven't. That's very like me. Um, (laughs) What, and sorry, who is your biggest inspiration? I think my parents, they both, they both uh, brought my family and me along from their perspective, both college educated, one a teacher, a patient with me, uh, one, uh, one, a, 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 a businessman, maybe a little less patient with me, but I think they, they uh, inspired me to go at everything I go at with a, a work ethic and a sense of keep at it till you're complete and do a great job uh, that you're willing to put your name uh, uh, behind each time. And I, I appreciate that guidance from them. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Aspire. You're at your best when you are doing what? Well, it it may be cooking. I I am a amateur uh, amateur chef, and uh, my wife and I throw the occasional dinner party. And uh, to be in the kitchen all day with no interruptions, maybe some classical music playing in the background, cooking and preparing, knowing that the food's going to be good, the company's going to be great. Uh, the wine is going to flow, uh, and uh, community is going to be had. That that really that really floats my boat. It's a good unwinder as well. 
now to take it a bit deeper. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? That I've always learned more from my failures uh, than my successes. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? You did your best. Exactly how you started the questions. You finish it the same way. Um, no, thanks, Scott. It's been a real uh, pleasure. Very insightful. For anyone that wanted to get more advice or any companies that wanted to reach out to you, how could they do that? Well, uh, they can go on the Anchor website, ankura.com, uh, and uh, type my name in, Scott Corzine. My bio's there, my picture's there, uh, and my cell phone and uh, numbers and contact information's there. Would love to hear from anyone. Uh, and uh, and chat with them and uh, and see if uh, if I can help them or if they can help me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.